Good morning, Emmanuel. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The title of the sermon this morning is A Grim Reminder. Uh, Grim, think of the Grim Reaper. Um, Although grim, the word grim doesn't always have connotations of death. Um, But we are going to be talking about death this morning, or spiritual death. As we were, before we knew Christ, dead in our trespasses and sins. In the 90s, there was a movie called The Sixth Sense. Anybody here seen The Sixth Sense? It was pretty popular. Bruce Willis. Um, Spoiler alert, okay, if you haven't seen it. (laughs) I mean, this is going to completely ruin the movie if you've never seen it, so you might want to cover your ears. Uh, There's just one thing about the movie that if you know, it's just completely... It's, it's a, a movie that's all based on this big surprise. Um, but in this movie, Bruce Willis played a character that walked around the whole movie and even had conversations. And at the end of the movie, you find out at the same time that the character that Bruce Willis plays finds out that he's actually dead and he's been dead for most of the movie, almost the whole movie. Um, That's the big reveal. But he walked around during the whole movie unaware that he was dead. Um, Before we had Christ, we were not aware of our own condition or the condition of the world around us. But after receiving Christ... And having the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, we now have what John Calvin called the spectacles to see what our condition was like, what we have been delivered from. God's salvation is more amazing when we are able to see what we came from. If you look at Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, and and I'm not going to read it, but we have, uh, have, have previously preached through it. Um, Paul is talking about all the blessings that we have in Christ. He talks about the blessing of election, that we have been chosen. He talks about the blessing of God's redemption through His blood, through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of sins. The blessing of the inheritance we have and will share with Christ. And the possession of the Holy Spirit the guarantee of our redemption. At the end of chapter 1, he is making the point that the power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places and put all things under his feet, that same power, the power of the Holy Spirit, is available to us. And not only has Christ been raised from the dead, In chapter 2, he talks about how Christ has raised us from the dead, how he made us alive. Not in a physical sense, but how he raised us, how he made us alive spiritually. In so doing, so there's a connection there between chapter 1 and chapter 2. 
as God made Christ alive through the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead, he also made us alive by his grace. And we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So in so so doing, um, he first reminds us of our, our former condition, that we were indeed dead in our trespasses and sins that we were indeed enslaved by the devil. We were enslaved by our enemies. And we were condemned to God's wrath. So let's read chapters two, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, just as the others." So, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is a sobering thought to remember that we were without you, what our condition was, but it is also a source of joy to realize where you have brought us, what you have redeemed us from. Father, I pray that you will speak through your word this morning so that we will be thankful for what you have done in our lives, so that we will not be tempted to pride, that we will remember what our condition was without you, and that everything good that we have is from you, and that everything good that we are is because of you and us. I pray that through this reminder of what we were, that we will stay as far from that as we can, resisting the temptation to return to the sins that we have been set free from. Please speak through your word and through me this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, actually, is one long sentence. Paul actually does this a lot. He uses long sentences. Remember the long sentence that contained the Berakah, or blessing, in chapter 1. That was actually verses 3 through 14. Um, the word here in chapter 2 has was changed when it was translated into English. The wording was changed to make it more understandable for us. Our translation begins, the English translation, and you he made alive, in verse 1. But in the original Greek, the you he made alive actually comes later in the sentence where we see it repeated in verse 5. I'm going to quote Charles Hodges' translation of the passage, which puts the words in the order in which they are actually found in the Greek New Testament. You, dead on account of sin, wherein you walked according to the course of the world, subject to Satan, associated with the children of disobedience, among whom we also had our conversation and were the children of wrath, even as the others, 
Us dead on account of trespasses hath God quickened. So the made alive actually comes later in the text, but in order to avoid confusion, translators put it at the beginning because it's such a long sentence. Paul goes into this explanation of what our condition was in order to make the point that we have been raised to life like Christ. We have been quickened or brought to life. And I would say, in terms of being, um, excuse me. So what was so what was our condition before we had Christ? Without Christ, we were dead in our sins. Chapter two, verse one, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So our condition. This is a reminder of our condition before Christ. Our condition was. Without Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sins. So what does it mean to be dead in our sins? Charles Hodge says that life in the Bible is a state of union with God, and death is a state of alienation from God. I think that we know for certain that Paul meant when he said that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, um, is that we were alienated from God. We had no life toward God. We were spiritually dead. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, 16 through 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. We know that God was talking there about something other than physical death because the day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they did die. But they were not dead physically yet. The process of physical death had begun, but they were spiritually dead. Spiritually separated, alienated, or estranged from God. Now physical death, just like spiritual death, is a consequence of sin and we are all are going to die physically as a result of our sin. But physical death also illustrates to us or gives us a vivid picture of what happens to a man morally and spiritually without God. In spiritual death, there is a decay of a man's soul, a moral and spiritual decay that takes place just as in physical death. There is a decay of the body, a deterioration. It's very strange language here that Paul uses that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. It's very strange to think that we were dead and yet still living. Dead and yet still walking. I don't think Paul had a 20th or 21st century horror movie in mind when he used this description. But I think horror movies do illustrate the reality that was true spiritually. John Gerstner and others, uh, according to James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary on um, Ephesians, John Gerstner compared our state before Christ to that of a zombie. Any of you ever watched a zombie movie? Um, Well, spoiler alert, I don't know. Um, 
a zombie in a horror movie is a corpse that is walking around, usually chasing people and trying to bite them, um, wandering about aimlessly and purposelessly. Uh, Gerstner even went so far to say that metaphorically we were an offense against God's nostrils. That is, decaying spiritual corpses we stunk to God. I think there is an illustration here. Uh, this, this does illustration our former condition. It must have been an offense to God that though we were dead and alienated from him spiritually, we continue to live our lives and go on apart from him, estranged from him, as if there was nothing wrong. As if it was life as usual. How offensive and appalling that must have been to him. To think that our sin is a stench of death to God is supported by Romans 3.13, where Paul quotes Psalm 5.9 to describe the state of all sinners, saying their throat is an open tomb. If our throats were open tombs, the imagery is that our words, our speech, our complaining, gossip, our sinful language stinks to God. Yet they carry the smell of death. We also know from Psalm 141.2 and Revelation 8.4 that our prayers are actually an aroma that is pleasing to God as the fragrance of incense. But our throats were an empty tomb before we knew Christ and carried with them the smell of death. There is something very unnatural and appalling about men who live their lives apart from God. And to us, it was the natural state of things, and it seemed normal. But now that we have the glasses or the spectacles of the Scripture and the Holy Spirit, we can see how grotesque our former state was without Christ, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we had no life to God, our Creator. We were alienated and estranged from Him while we lived. As Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We were wandering about without purpose like zombies, aimlessly living our lives apart from God without meaning. And another thing that this metaphor of death illustrates, spiritual death, is that we were incapable of, of changing our condition, our own condition. A dead man or a dead person cannot change their condition. They're powerless. They cannot move. They cannot get up and come back to life. They can't choose to be alive again. We were incapable of choosing any kind of life or relationship toward God or any kind of of acknowledging him and, and, and worshiping him or, or escaping from our alienation from him. We had no will. We were incapable of saving ourselves or choosing salvation. And so we see here in the text that Paul says, you he made alive. God brought us to life from the death. He had to regenerate us our souls. He had to give us spiritual life. Um, It was miraculous. Um, It was a resurrection from our spiritual condition. 
of alienation from God or lack of any kind of spiritual life or spiritual desire, any kind of desire for God. Romans 3 says that no one desires God, that we didn't desire Him. And so God had to breathe that life in us through the Holy Spirit as He breathed the breath of life into Adam when He created him. And um, I think a good illustration of that is Lazarus. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And of course, Lazarus was probably all wrapped up in, in, in cloths and everything in the tomb. And we don't know actually exactly how that worked, if the cloth just came off of him so he could move, or if he levitated out of the tomb. Um, we don't know exactly how that worked, but the joke is that, that I heard in, in Bible college that if Jesus had not specified Lazarus, and if he just said, come forth, that every dead man, woman, and creature in the tomb would have come out. <laughs> so powerful was the word of Christ. So powerful was the word of God. Um, and it is the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us spiritual life so that we can believe. And as we see later in chapter 2, that faith is a gift from God. Is um, We're not saved by ourselves, of ourselves, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. You he made alive. The Holy Spirit must make us alive, regenerate us. Um, he must take out our heart of stone, as it says in Ezekiel, and give us a heart of flesh before we can believe and repent of our sins because we were dead and incapable of choosing otherwise. We were dead and incapable of exercising our will to move toward God. Rather, he moved toward us and gave us spiritual life, gave us a heart of flesh so that we could believe and repent of our sins. So we were dead, and, and by the way, sin trespasses. Um, the New International Bible Dictionary defines it as a violation of someone's rights, whether God or, or man. Um, gotquestions.org, which is a good site, um, the, defines it as a violation of, of a law or a boundary. And uh, the Wycliffe Bible Dictionary defines it as an act of treachery um, or unfaithfulness toward God. But it is a violation. I, I think a good, a good definition out of that, the one um, is it's a violation of a law or a right or a boundary. And then sin, of course, is missing, missing the mark, um, the mark of God's righteousness, the mark of the standard that he's set for us. So if you're trying to shoot an arrow at the target, the mark would be the bullseye. You're missing the mark. Um, and we have to hit the mark uh, of righteousness to have eternal life. Apart from Christ, of course, none of us hit that mark. So we need 
Christ to be our righteousness and to forgive us of our sins through um, his payment for them on the cross. So we were dead in our sins without Christ. And secondly, we were, our condition, the next part of our condition before Christ was we were enslaved by our enemies. And this passage actually lists the three enemies of the believer. And of course, at the time, we did not know they were our enemies. We were, we were in alliance with the three of them, but we were also enslaved to each of them. Let's go back to verse 1 again. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. We were walking according to the course of this world. And that is the first enemy that we were enslaved to. We were enslaved to the world. We were conformists. We were conformed to the world. Romans 12.2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We were not yet, we were not transformed yet. We were conformed. When I worked at Salem for youth, where Gabe and Gary still work, um, we sometimes had 12-year-olds living in the same cottage as 16- or 17-year-olds. And it was often disappointing to see some of the younger kids go along with something stupid the older kids would do. And you would ask them, why, why did you do that? Well, I wanted to fit in, or the other kids were doing it. And it would take sometimes, all it would take sometimes was one kid who wanted to try something dumb, and several of the others would fall in line. Children are by nature conformists. And by nature, without Christ, we were conformists. We went along with the values and ideals of the world, mindlessly following what everyone else did. We were enslaved to the mindset of the world, and we were deceived into believing these lies. One of the lies I had to confront when I worked at Salem was the lie that marijuana had all these healthy benefits. You know, um, A lot of it was lies created by people who enjoyed smoking weed and wanted to justify smoking weed and, do, and to make it into something good and healthy. Uh, but there's a lot of propaganda for marijuana that I had to attempt to debunk with the kids I worked with. Um, so there was a lot of propaganda that we believed from the world. With, without Christ, we believed that the ways of the world were what life was all about. Now that we have Christ, we know differently. Now that we have a new set of glasses or spectacles, we can see that the ways of the world lead to death. And not just spiritual death, but also physical death. Some sin leads to premature death, as we see in Proverbs when Solomon talks about the adulterer and how his adultery leads to his own death. So we were conformed to the world, and we were also, and, and we were enslaved to the world, and we were also enslaved to the devil. Ephesians 2 1 through 2 says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. A lot of ideas have been put forth in an attempt to explain exactly what the meaning of the title, the prince of the power of the air, is. Uh, we know that Paul is referring to Satan or the devil. We were under his control. We were enslaved to him. It is not clear, however, what Paul meant by the power of the air part. We know that Satan is the prince of darkness. In Matthew 5.26, Jesus said, If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Um, Colossians 1.13 says, Christ has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Some commentators, and in, in taking this from um, Charles Hodge, some commentators say the atmosphere was thought to be the spiritual realm where the spirits dwell, and he is a prince of all the other demons who dwell in the spiritual realm. So that would mean the power referred to the demonic beings um, and their power, and he was their prince, and the, they, were, they were in the the air or the uh, um, the spiritual the atmosphere um, or maybe not the atmosphere but just per se but the spiritual realm and another idea that's been proposed is that the power of the air describes a temporary power like the air that is dissipating and but whatever Paul means exactly in using this description Satan is the prince of this present world, the god of this present age, the ruler of this world. Jesus called him the ruler of this world in John 12:31, John 14:30 and John 16:11. In 2 Corinthians 4:4, 4, 4, Paul referred to him as the god of this age, who had blinded the minds of those who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So without Christ, we were blinded by Satan and we were enslaved to Satan. John Calvin says that this does not mean that we were without guilt. We can't blame it on the devil because it is our own rebellion which enslaved us to him. In a sense, we were co-conspirators with the devil. In Genesis 3, Adam was standing with Eve when Satan said, If you eat of this fruit, you will become like God. Eve was deceived, but Adam seemed to know what he was getting into, and he was held fully responsible for the choice he made. Satan was implying to Adam that God was holding out on him, that God was holding something good back from him. You can be like God yourself. You can be greater than God, or at least be like him which is what Satan wanted for himself when he rebelled. And the very sin that Satan committed when he tried to be like God or greater than God was that the sin that Adam committed when he ate the fruit. He wanted to be like God himself or a God to himself. So he joined in the conspiracy with Satan and became a co-conspirator. He went in league with the devil. And we were in league with Satan, though we were enslaved by him. And we joined with Satan in opposition and defiance against God. We were traitors against our Creator. 
We committed treason with the evil one, and we were enslaved by the prince of the power of the air. Where it says the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, the spirit may be referring to Satan. It may be referring, um, uh, as uh, Charles Hodge said, to the mindset of the world or the mindset of rebellion against God. Sons of disobedience is an idiom. An idiom is a group of words or a saying from which the meaning cannot be understood through typical rules of grammar. For example, he kicked the bucket. Uh, Since we're talking about death. uh, From the typical rules of grammar, you would not know that he kicked the bucket means he died. Here, the sons of disobedience is a Hebrew idiom which refers to stubborn people, willful, stubborn, rebellious people. We were stubborn in our sin. We were stubbornly set against God. Later, Paul also says that we were, and I don't remember where I get the idiom part, um, but I'm sure it was from a commentator, not, not didn't come with, up with that on my own. Um, later, Paul also says we were children of wrath. Although sons of disobedience is an idiom, this kind of language, sons of disobedience and children of wrath, is a contrast with what we are now, children of God. We were sons of disobedience, children of wrath, and children of the devil, as Jesus essentially described the Jewish religious leaders in John 8 by saying to them, You are of your father, the devil. Many professed Christians or believers will say that all men are the children of God, and that is not true. We are not born into this world children of God. We are born sons of disobedience. We are by nature children of wrath, children deserving of God's wrath, his anger. But we are adopted through Christ into the family of God. We are born again by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit into the family of God. God makes us his children. We are not deserving to be his children. We are not naturally his children, but he makes us by his grace his children when we believe and turn from our sins. But we are not all children of God. Only those those of us who have believed and repented are his children. So we were enslaved by the world. We were enslaved by Satan. And we were also enslaved by the flesh or our own sinful desires. So the flesh is our old nature or that, I guess, maybe I would describe it as the sliver that remains of our old stony heart, Um, the the seat of our our old sinful desires that's left. When God removed our heart of stone, there was a sliver left that still tries to take over and dominate and rule, rule us, though we have a new heart, a heart of um, a new heart that desires to please God. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, um, again, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, 
fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. This is where I think that we were like zombies here. We were walking around purposelessly and aimlessly, uh, acting on whatever our greatest desire was at the moment, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. We were selfish. We lived our lives for ourselves. We did not love God or love our neighbors as ourselves or consider the interest of others as we have been taught to do by the scriptures. We were addicts. We were addicted to our sins. We were idolaters. We worshipped our sins. We did not exalt God. We exalted ourselves in whatever we wanted. We fulfilled the desires of the flesh and the mind. So before we knew Christ, we were dead in our sins. We were enslaved to our enemies, the three enemies of the Christian, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And finally, before we knew Christ, we were condemned to wrath. We were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Just as the others who are still lost today. James Montgomery Boyce says, The worldly mind does not take God's wrath seriously because it does not take sin seriously. Talking about wrath, even amongst many professed believers, is not politically correct. Many would consider it offensive that we would speak of God's wrath. We don't hear many songs about God's wrath. Um... That would make an interesting hymn. But God's wrath is his righteous anger against sin. It's because we don't understand how grotesque and horrible and offensive sin is to God that it is treason against our Creator, that it is the exaltation of self above God that we, that we cringe when we hear of God's wrath. We don't cringe when a terrorist is put to death or when a sex offender is thrown in prison. But our sin against God, all of our sin is deserving of death. We have offended the highest being, the source of light and the source of love in the universe. We have shaken our fists against his throne. So God's righteous, God's wrath is righteous. His judgment is just, and we are deserving of his judgment. In Romans 3, there is a term propitiation used of Christ, and many commentators and scholars have tried to change the translation from propitiation to a word called expiation, which means atoning sacrifice. And the reason they do this is because propitiation means an appeasement of wrath, or a satisfaction of wrath. So the term propitiation includes the concept of God's wrath against sin. Expiation simply means an atoning sacrifice. And there is a difference. Christ was more than a sacrifice for our sins. He was a sacrifice to God, to appease the wrath of God. God, instead of pouring out his anger and judgment on us, 
poured out poured it out on his only son christ bore the anger of his father his wrath on the cross god wounded him bruised him and put his son to death the death of a criminal for our sins and when they take away the term propitiation they also take away something very wonderful and beautiful that God would turn his own wrath on himself so that we could escape and he would not be forced to turn his own wrath on us in order to remain righteous. Wrath is something that is deserved and something that is necessary for justice to be done. Otherwise, God would have never turned his wrath on his son. But we were by nature the children of wrath. We were condemned. We were without hope. Our destination was eternity in hell. And that is perhaps worse than anything else that Paul has mentioned so far. That we were dead in our sins and enslaved. We were destined for eternity and alienation from God. Eternity and torment in the lake of fire. This was our condition before Christ. But if you look at verse 4, you see one of the most important words in Scripture. It's a three-letter word. A common word. But. The word is but. And it is followed by an even more important word, one which names the most glorious and the most powerful. God. But God. God did not leave us this way as children of wrath. God intervened. He did not leave us dead in our sins. He did not leave us enslaved. He did not leave us dead to face his wrath. Could it be that God loved us while we were stinking Foul, decaying corpses. While we were living our lives apart from him. Ignoring him. Ignoring his blessings and his goodness. Could it be that God loved us when we were in league with Satan? While we were conspiring against his kingdom and his throne? Could it be that God loved us when we worshipped ourselves and our own desires. When we were idolaters and slave conformists to the world. Could it be that God loved us when we deserved his anger and his judgment and nothing less than eternity in the lake of fire? But God, who is rich in mercy, in verse 4, because of the great, his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. This is how amazing God's grace is. This is how amazing his love is. We were unlovable, but he loved us. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
And one of my favorite verses in the Bible follows, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So now we are no longer to spend eternity having God's anger or wrath poured out on us, but we will spend eternity receiving his kindness. How will he show us his kindness? What are the exceeding riches of his grace? What do we have to look forward to? That is yet to be revealed. God will spend eternity loving us and being kind to us, showing us his treasury of grace, the storehouse of his grace, the riches of his grace. Let this reminder make us grateful for what God has done for us. Let this reminder make us humble. The only, good th- the only thing good in us is from Christ. And let this reminder motivate us not to return to what we were. Although our salvation is secure, our sin still stinks to God. And for those of you here today who, do not, who may not know Christ... I want to challenge you with the words of the people to cry out with the people in Jerusalem because on the day that Jesus went into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and the people waved palm branches The people cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the word Hosanna means please save us now. Cry out to God. Hosanna. Lord, save me now. And whosoever calls on the name of the Lord as Romans 10 says, shall be saved. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your love. Lord, we do not deserve to be raised with Christ, to be seated in the heavenly places, to be translated from the power of darkness to the kingdom of the Son of your love, to be freed from the bondage of sin and Satan, and to be adopted into your family to be co-heirs with Christ, to inherit your kindness and the riches of your grace. Lord, we do not deserve this. And I thank you so much for your grace. Let this power that raised Christ from the dead work in us that we might be holy, that we might be changed, that we might crucify the flesh with its passions and desires, that we would be the fragrance of Christ to those who do not know you, so that our prayers and our lives would be an aroma that is pleasing to you, that brings glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.